have to say a few things about Israel and Gaza. A lot of people are asking me about it. It's not an easy situation to talk about. Tempers are flared and raw on both sides. When I mention this on the air on my radio show, I get a deluge of almost exclusively pro-Palestinian text messages and calls saying terrorists are not born, they're made. The Palestinians have been put in an impossible situation. And to some extent that's true. My initial overarching instinct is that it's always been untenable to expect millions of people to live in squalid open-air refugee camps or prisons in perpetuity with no sense of hope, no possibility of nationhood. It's an intolerable situation that Israel finds itself in, and it is incumbent on the people who hold all the chips, who have the power, who have the might, who have the luxurious lives of living in a Western liberal democracy that, to be fair, they have created, it is incumbent on them to find a solution, to find a way out of this morass. It's just not good enough for the Israeli right to keep saying, we have no partner in peace, what can we do? You have to do something. You have to have done something. There was a time when something was being done. I mean, let's just roll the clock back a bit. We don't have to go into the 1967 war when Egypt was ready to pounce and was amassing its military. This was a time when Israel did not control the West Bank or the Gaza Strip. The West Bank was part of Jordan. The Gaza Strip was part of Egypt. The Golan Heights were part of Syria. But the Egyptians blocked Israel's access to shipping, and Israel had said that if you do that, we're going to consider that war. Israel did it, uh, Egypt did it rather. They amassed their tanks and troops on the border. They told the UN peacekeeping outfits to get out of Dodge, which they did. And just before Egypt could attack, Israel preemptively struck. And as part of that, took the Sinai and the Gaza Strip and the West Bank and the Golan Heights. And then just six years later, if you know the story of the 1973 war, the Arab countries said, stuff this for a joke, let's finally push Israel into the sea, let's get rid of all the Jews, and their armies amassed on the borders, and again Israel struck preemptively and wiped them out. And then three decades later, there was a real attempt at peace. It was orchestrated by President Clinton, Ehud Barak, who was the Israeli Prime Minister, and Yasser Arafat, the Palestinian leader, came to Camp David. They worked on a follow-up to the Oslo Accords, and essentially Arafat was offered 97% of everything he'd been asking for. Certainly the Americans and other international observers regarded it as a travesty that the Palestinians walked away from that deal that Israel was offering them. In President Clinton's biography, he writes an anecdote that Yasser Arafat once complimented him by telling him, you are a great man. And Clinton said to Arafat, I'm not a great man, I'm a failure, and you made me one. 
And then there was the attempt by Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin to offer peace to the Palestinians. He was assassinated by a right-wing Israeli. And in the wake of all that, successive Israeli right-wing governments, the legacy of Benjamin Netanyahu has been that essentially Israelis have functionally given up on the possibility of peace. They talk about it, but in practice, no real attempts have been made. Now, one could say that's understandable because the Gaza Strip has been run for almost 20 years by Hamas, a terrorist group that says in its charter that it wants to wipe out all of Israel, that there should be no Jews living in that part of the world. And to people who think, well, maybe there shouldn't be, I mean, maybe the whole thing is a colonial project, let's just be careful with our words about colonialism. Israel is not a colonial project. You may think that it's a misbegotten venture. You may think that it's horrendous to have shipped all of these Jews back to that part of the world, blithely stampeding the interests of the people who were living there in the 40s. But it's not a colonial project the way that the British Empire was, or like the Dutch East Indies, or the Portuguese Empire, or the Spanish. Think about what, for example, an acknowledgement of country or a land acknowledgement is. It's a recognition that regardless of whatever has happened in the past few hundred years, take the case of Australia, that having ancestors who lived here thousands of years ago counts for something. If anyone was doing welcomes to country in the Middle East, it would be Jews who have the most ancient existing civilization and ethnicity and religion on that land. This is land where King David once ruled in 1000 BC. This is not the British partitioning Africa with no history in that place. This is the people who have the greatest historical links to that land and who have been hounded and raped and slaughtered and excluded from every other society, suffering the worst genocide in the history of the world, and then being given a tiny patch of land from which they came. Now, that doesn't justify the settlements. It doesn't justify the Israeli right. It certainly doesn't justify the lack of action on pursuing peace. But let's cut the nonsense about colonialism. We in the West have a post-colonial guilt complex, and perhaps rightly so, which biases us towards thinking that brown-skinned poor people are usually in the right, and white people who speak good English and wear fancy suits and try to justify why the poor brown-skinned people are wrong are usually the oppressors. It certainly looks that way when you look at the conditions in Gaza and the West Bank versus the conditions in Israel. But be conscious, be mindful of that bias that we have, that post-colonial bias. Because we're talking about a tiny number of people, Jews, globally, who have never been accepted into any society that they've lived in, have never been allowed to join the professions or get their own education 
or be part of the moneyed class or the elite anywhere, who now finally have a place where they can live supposedly in freedom. Again, that does not justify the abysmal treatment of Palestinians, but it does complicate the moral narrative when you just think that the Palestinians are the good guys and the Israelis are the colonialist oppressors. I mean, the thought experiment is worth heeding in Israel of if each party could do whatever it is that they want to do, had unlimited power, what would they do? We know what the Israelis would do because they do have all the power. They would not be wiping out all the Arabs. And we know what the Palestinians would do if they had more power because when they get a bit of power, they do things like what happened the weekend before last. Not all of them. Most of them are victims of this same death cult as the Israelis are. Most of them are victims of Hamas. But let's be clear. If the Arabs put down their arms, there would be peace tomorrow in the Middle East. If the Jews put down their arms, there would be no Jews left in the Middle East. You may not be fully aware of what happened the Saturday before last. You may just think, well, there was, okay, there was an attack, the Palestinians had been oppressed, so of course they lashed out. Regrettably, some civilians were killed. Israel, Israel has not wanted to traumatise its own citizens by publicising the images that came out of that assault by Hamas on southern Israel. But they have shown some of those images and some of those body cam videos that were being live-streamed to journalists. And the descriptions are absolutely horrifying. They're like the Christchurch massacre. Images of kindergartens being shot up, of babies being executed, of civilians being beheaded, of old ladies being raped of old ladies bleeding from their genitals being dragged through crowds in Gaza where onlookers were cheering and screaming, God is great. For Israel, it's a bit like a 9-11. And let's be clear, this part of Israel, not that it would ever be justified to treat anybody this way, but this part of Israel is not the settlements in the West Bank populated by hyper-Zionist, anti-peace Israelis who want a a mega-Israel that gives Palestinians no rights. Southern Israel, and I hadn't realized this until I did more reading after the massacre, southern Israel is largely populated by left-wing Israelis. It's kibbutzim, it's places where people who really would be would have been members of of organizations like Peace Now, which seeks a a resolution to the conflict. It's a pretty hippy-dippy part of the country, this border area with Gaza. It's no coincidence uh, that it was the location for this peace concert where hundreds of young Israelis, 22-year-olds, 23-year-olds, 
most of them left wing, would gather and have a rave in an open field. It was literally a peace festival, a music festival for peace. It starts around midnight on Friday night. And on Saturday morning, as they were still partying, as the sun rose, terrorists struck. Many of the young people who weren't machine gunned down found shelter, some of them in bomb shelters, and the terrorists came along with grenades and rolled grenades into their shelters. And the body cam footage shows writhing bodies with their limbs ripped off, still alive, targeted specifically as civilians. Now there are hundreds of hostages in Gaza. Infants, old people, some of the infants with their families, some not. There are some reports that Hamas has said that for every Palestinian or Hamas militant who is killed by Israel in any ground incursion, they will live stream the execution or beheading of an Israeli civilian hostage. This is the party that was voted in by the citizens of Gaza. Only once. That's the way you do elections in Middle Eastern countries, isn't it? You vote for people once and then they don't let you vote again. So it's somewhat disconcerting to see that most of the narrative from listeners and from the mainstream press is hand-wringing about what Israel will do, whether it will be proportionate, whether Israel is going to hurt Palestinian civilians. Of course that's a horrible thing to countenance. Of course the blockade of Gaza in which Essential materials have not been getting in and people have been forced to live below the poverty line for years is barbaric and regrettable. But the blockade is not because Israelis like blockading Arabs. The blockade is so that Hamas can't pull off shit like this. Is it overhanded? Surely. Yes. Is it too punitive against innocent Palestinians? Surely. Yes. But if you think there's a, a side of good guys and bad guys in this one, and you think the good guys are the oppressed brown-skinned people who've been forced to live in squalor in the Gaza Strip, then you're Empathic imagination is not large enough. Because there were regular people trying to lead their lives who were specifically targeted, their babies executed, their infants shot, their grandparents raped. For what? What is Hamas's play here? What do they think is going to happen? How much restraint do they expect the Israelis to have? How much restraint would you have if it happened to your family? And of course the same can be said on the other side. How much patience would you have if you were a Gazan 
for Israelis who say, well, we just wanted to go to a music festival and dance. As just a few kilometers away, you are living in squalor, unable to hold on to any hope of a better future because of Israel and because of Hamas. It's a catastrophe. The whole thing is a catastrophe. And this is kind of a doomsday scenario for Israel. It's, it's, uh, it's an episode of Fauda, the Israeli thriller, turned up to 11. So I don't have a lot to say, except that I find it pretty disgusting at this early point for people to be marching in the streets against Israel. The country has its flaws. The country has made huge mistakes. But to some extent, the country is a victim of its own success and a victim of how young it is. What happened when the British Empire conquered Australia? Or New Zealand? Or Canada? Or the United States? What kind of behaviour was there? I mean, it happened long enough ago that we don't have to think about it terribly. And we make trite gestures towards reconciliation and we say our acknowledgements of country before every Zoom meeting. And we think that's going to make it okay. But if it had happened just 70 years ago and every attempt at reconciliation had been rebuffed and every partner in peace had been swiftly replaced by a, a more extreme faction who simply wanted all white people either killed or moved off the continent altogether, what would you expect our reaction to be? So I don't know where that gets us, except that I do think the only appropriate emotion at the moment is deep heartbreak and sadness at the barbarity of humankind and patience and resolve and empathy for both sides. No one's going to win out of this. But to expect one side to just cop it is hypocritical.